The New Testament reading is from Acts chapter 8, um, found on page 1101 in the Bible, uh, Bibles in the pews. That's Acts chapter 8, verse, starting at verse 26, page 1101. Philip and the Ethiopian. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, go south to the road the desert road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and on his way home was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading this passage of scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before the shearer is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about? Himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotus and traveled about, preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. This is the word of the Lord. Great. Well, keep that uh, passage of the Bible open. It's page 1101 if you inadvertently shut it. Um, Well, on Sunday mornings in August, we're having a series of one-offs, but they're all from the book of Acts, seeing how the uh, Christian faith spread from Jerusalem to Rome and in its course embracing people of all religions, race and rank in life. And today we're looking at this uh, encounter between Philip and this Ethiopian official. But you might think, how come this Ethiopian is in Jerusalem? I mean, this is how Rembrandt depicts the scene. The Ethiopian is clearly Jewish because he's gone up to Jerusalem to worship, probably at one of the major festivals, but he's black. Now, Amharic is also a Semitic language like Hebrew and Arabic. They're all Semitic people. And you don't normally think of Jews as being black, do you? This is Miss Israel. She, uh, all Israeli women have a tan, well, not all, most of them have a tan. But you don't normally think of them as being someone who looks like a Somali, somebody from northeastern Africa. 
we're familiar with Jews praying with shawls around their head, but we don't really expect to see at the Wailing Wall someone who looks like this. Israeli women serve in the defense forces, and yes, they have a tan, but you don't expect them to be quite as dark as this one. If you've got a good memory, or if you're old enough, then you'll remember that in the early 1980s there was Operation Moses and then Operation Solomon in the 90s, when approximately 100,000 Ethiopian Jews, or Falashas as they're called, were airlifted to settle in Israel. But how come they were in Ethiopia in the first place? Well, it's what the Bible calls Cush, and it's what is today the Upper Nile, which is the southern part of Egypt or the northern part of Sudan and Ethiopia. And they came in four main waves, apparently, at the time of Moses, uh, according to Jewish tradition, uh, that his son took some of the, uh, the Jews to Ethiopia. And then uh, we know from the Bible that uh, the Queen of Ethiopia travelled to meet Solomon around 900 BC and she was converted and had a son with Solomon. And in addition to her conversion um, and her people who were with her, doubtless a kind of expanded retinue went to Ethiopia and were assigned to look after and serve her son. And then in 722, when the Assyrians squashed the northern kingdom of Israel, based in Samaria, then some from four of the tribes escaped to Ethiopia. And later, in the Greek period, in the time of Alexander the Great, there were Jewish garrisons between Israel and Ethiopia. And when those garrisons were overrun by the Greeks, they escaped to Ethiopia. So this guy is one of them. And verse 27, he came to Jerusalem to worship. Most likely, in fact, he was a convert to Judaism because he is said to be a eunuch. And if you're familiar with Deuteronomy 23, verse 1, you know that deliberately castrating a man is forbidden. So I don't suppose he'd come from a Jewish family, but his role as the chief finance officer to the Ethiopian Queen Mother. The name uh, Candace isn't a personal name, it's rather a royal title. And she was carrying out civic duties on behalf of her son, and somewhere, somehow, this African official must have met Jews and embraced their faith. And as part of that faith, he had gone to Jerusalem to celebrate at the temple. Now, I guess in such cultures where with female royalty, there was the need, it was felt, to uh, make sure that the men who worked closely with the royal women were incapable of becoming too intimate with them. But since it's God's intention for men and women to marry and to multiply, to deliberately prevent somebody from such intimacy and reproduction is regarded as wrong. Interestingly, just three chapters further on than the one that the Ethiopian is reading in his chariot. He's reading Isaiah 53. But just three chapters further on, Isaiah 56, verses 3 to 5, 
we have a, a list of various groups of people who will share in the great hope that Isaiah expresses and that they too one day will be welcomed into the people of God. So Isaiah 53, 56 verse 3, And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the, eunuch who keeps, the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose the things that please me and hold fast to my covenant, I will give in my house, that's his temple, and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They, just like the foreigner, could look forward to being a member of the people of God. And this guy is both an African from a different nation, and he is a eunuch. And that hope of Isaiah included them and was fulfilled now through Christ. And since Christ, those who are the people of God, has expanded enormously to fulfill what was prophesied many centuries before. So that's how he came to be there. But why was he there? He clearly wanted to find God. It may be that he was impressed by the quality of the Jews and their morality compared to those around him. Or it may have been that he was impressed by their monotheism as opposed to the pagan superstition which surrounded him. But through Judaism, he had heard that God's symbolic dwelling place on earth was in the temple at Jerusalem. And so, in a sense, he wants to go and find him. Now, the king who built that temple, Solomon, once wrote how God has put eternity in our hearts. We're wired up with that vacuum. Augustine, who came from Tunisia, centuries later said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. Although he'd embraced Judaism, he was still searching. And where is he looking? Well, at that particular point in time, he's reading the Jewish scriptures. He's reading a section from the book of Isaiah, this time Isaiah 53. Now you might say, particularly if you're visiting us today, you might say, why should I recognize scripture as, as having any authority over me? Well, I'm sure you realize that there are very limited options for deciding what is true. There's oneself. I decide there's a collection of other human beings so that either the majority, 51%, decides, or some kind of ruling elite, some oligarchy, they decide what the truth is. The third possibility is there is no such thing as truth. But the fourth one, the one that Christians embrace, is that there is some external authority, the creator of the universe. He has authority, and he's communicated it to us through the prophets and the apostles, and they've recorded it in the scriptures. Jesus, God himself on earth, then endorses the truth of the Old Testament and makes provision for the apostles, the eyewitnesses of what he said and did, to write it to form the New Testament. And Jesus, like the apostles and some of the prophets, 
also had the ability to do miracles, signs and wonders in public, which even their arch opponents reluctantly conceded actually happened and there was only a supernatural possibility. They were perverse enough to ascribe it to a malevolent force. That was God's way of endorsing that these guys were his authorised spokesmen. But do intelligent people, people who are world-renowned in their, in their respective spheres, buy this claim that there is an external creator God who's communicated truth to us and that it's been reliably recorded? Well, let me introduce you to two people who lend weight to this. The first is Dr. Roger Morey. He was the director of the Ashmolean Museum in Oxford. Now, I was very fortunate when I studied archaeology of the Old Testament that he was my personal tutor. So each week, he'd set me an essay, go away and read these books and articles. I would write 2,000 words. I'd hand it in the day before. He'd then pick it apart for an hour in front of me on my own. It was a very, very... Um, Good experience, actually. <laughs> now, what he didn't know about what is called Western Asiatic antiquities, nobody knew. He was an expert in the archaeology and the literature of the ancient Near East. And I can remember him saying to me once that no archaeological or literary discovery had ever placed any doubts on the veracity of the Old Testament record. But you may be a scientist. So let me introduce you to somebody else. I had somebody pop in church here about two weeks ago who I hadn't seen for 40 years since we were students at university. So I'm on a bit of a nostalgia trip at the moment. Anyway, let me introduce you to another scientist. This guy is Professor Daniel Hastings. Dan is quite literally a rocket scientist often thought to be amongst the cleverest amongst the scientific community. He is the professor who heads the Department of Engineering Systems and Aeronautics and Astronautics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the United States. And MIT, as it's referred to, is always ranked amongst the top five universities in the world. In one league at the moment I looked up yesterday, it's currently ranked first. He's not only the professor there, but he has been the dean the academic in charge of all the undergraduate uh, students and their courses. He, he is quite an exceptional scientist. In his mid-30s, he was uh, the chief scientist of the United States Air Force. He's on the board of NASA, the United States Space Agency. He's one of 20 directors appointed by the President of the United States to the National Science Board of America. Now, that's just a few lines from his eight-page CV, which you can read if you Google it, and uh, it's quite impressive. Now, I know there are some smart cookies, well, three or four, in our church, <laughs> but... Um, <laughs> And you may even be a smarter one who's visiting us this morning, but I doubt there's any of us who are smarter than this guy. This, though, is what he writes on his personal webpage. I've been a believer in Jesus Christ since I was a teenager. 
I became a Christian in 1972, basically as a search for meaning in my life. I have found Jesus Christ to provide the purpose and meaning for which I was searching. He has led and guided me ever since. In coming to know Jesus Christ, I have acknowledged that I am not capable of running my life on my own, and I need him to explicitly give me direction. After becoming a Christian in high school, he went on to study mathematics, engineering, and physics. And he writes, I have never found my occupation as a scientist and engineer to be in conflict with my faith. Rather, I see my calling to be in searching out and using the knowledge that God has given us to better the lot of humanity and to serve him on this earth. I have never found my occupation as a scientist and as an engineer to be in conflict with my faith. Now, if there were an intellectually compelling scientific reason to prevent belief in God, I think he... Dan is more likely to have found it than us. But he hasn't. In fact, like Roger Morey, he displays a significant amount of intellectual humility. Maybe we should too, and perhaps we discover more. Well, what did this Ethiopian uh, learn? He was reading from Isaiah 53. And he's reading about a person. This is what he was reading. He, the person, was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living, for the transgression of my people he was punished. Now that was written around 700 BC. And that's what it would look like, an unrolled scroll, a copy of part of the book of Isaiah. It was found in 1947 just at the very northern western tip of the Dead Sea, uh, called Qumran. It was the home of the Essene sect that kind of lived and occupied it between about 200 BC and 100 AD. And it was found in a jar in a cave. And when they uh, unrolled it, this is what you get. This is what you can see in the shrine of the book in Jerusalem today. It's quite remarkable how Isaiah 53 describes the arrest, the trial, the suffering of Jesus so far in advance and that it was particularly for the transgression of my people he was punished. His substitutionary sacrifice was penal. It means that Jesus, who did no wrong, gave his life so that the wrongdoers would not have to face justice and be condemned. God himself, in the person of Jesus, willingly bore the punishment of exclusion 
so human beings whose lifestyle would make them unsuitable for heaven and the presence of God might not be excluded. I have a grandfather who paid the ultimate sacrifice and died six weeks from the end of the First World War. On his grave, the inscription reads, he gave his life for others. On his son's, my father's grave, we had inscribed, he lived his life for others. The sacrifice of one enabled the other to live. So with Jesus and so with us. But it's not automatic. The Ethiopian grasped this. A response is required. We need to confess our sins, which muddy the waters between our, ourselves and God. And water baptism symbolizes just that. Something done to us, making us clean. So in Acts 8, 37, we read, and as they were going along the road, I mean, obviously, this is a summary of what happened. Philip obviously had quite a while to explain quite a lot of stuff to um, the Ethiopian, which isn't recorded in this instant. But anyway, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptised? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptised him. Incidentally, there's a little bit of um, an insight into the mode of baptism here. We read that they both, that's Philip and the Ethiopian, went down into the water implying that what they did, they both did, since they are both the subject of just one verb. So this militates against, at least in this instance, there being submersion, both of them going under the water, but also against dry effusion of Philip standing on the, the bank of the, the, the water and keeping dry whilst pouring a bit of water over the other guy who's standing in water. No, what clearly has happened here, and maybe both Baptists, some Baptists, and some Pido-Baptists who baptise some children have got it wrong. Or maybe the symbolism of water rather than the amount, is what is important. It would seem, and all the earliest paintings of baptism suggest, that both of them went into the shallow water, to around about knee or thigh height. And one of them, Philip, poured water over the head, and therefore over the rest of the body, of the Ethiopians. An Ethiopian. Now, while Christians might disagree as to how much water is used in baptism and when baptism is to be administered, all acknowledge that baptism is a sign for forgiveness of sins. And in baptism, sins or wrongdoings are symbolically washed away. Well, this Ethiopian, high official as he was, was not too proud to submit to that. He was prepared to acknowledge his moral deficiencies. Back to uh, 
Dan Hastings a moment. I remember hearing from him one Christmas, as you might have realised, we were students together at the same college, on the same landing, in the same CU, but unfortunately not with the same intellectual capacity. <laughs> anyway, shortly after he got married, he dropped me a line. In those days before email, you wrote with pen and ink on paper, just for any of you who don't know that, and British Airways or American Airlines transported it for you. And if the earliest you'd get a reply was two weeks later. Well, in his letter, Dan wrote this, amongst other things. Getting married and living together made me realise just how selfish and sinful I was. Well, I wonder whether there's anybody here this morning who feels a little intellectual and moral humility and needs like the Ethiopian to come to Christ. If you don't know how to, you can always speak to me afterwards and we can meet up and I'll explain. Or if maybe you have quietly in recent months done so like this Ethiopian, then you need to go public about that. And we do that through baptism and or confirmation. And we have an opportunity coming up in November. Again, have a talk to me if you'd like to explore that. After baptism, Philip was then taken to uh, witness in the coastal area of what is today Ashdod, Azotus. And uh, you can see where it is, it's just north of Gaza. And then he moves up north to Caesarea, which is just north of Tel Aviv today. And that's an artist impression as to what Caesarea Maritima would have looked like in those days. It was a large city with a large Greek-speaking population. Originally, it was a small harbour known as Stratos Tower. It was rebuilt by Herod the Great in magnificent Hellenistic style, and it greatly improved the harbour so that you could get 300 ships in. In Philip's day, and this is the, an aerial picture of uh, the ruins today, some of, it, some of the ruins are obviously underwater and some are on land, but in Philip's day, it was the seat of the Roman government of Judea, and excavations have revealed significant finds, including the Herodian port, an amphitheatre shaped like a hippodrome for horse races, picture Ben-Hur, gladiate, uh, you know, horse races, chariot races, which had half a mile race course. There was a palace built on a promontory out into the sea, identified as Herod's palace, and there was a great raised aqueduct and a theatre which seated three and a half thousand people. And Herod built a temple to Augustus Caesar there. They loved sucking up to the Caesars. And an inscription was found in the theatre which mentions Pontius Pilate by name. And his, it's his dedication of a Tiberium, a sacred site devoted to the subsequent emperor Tiberius. Well, that's Philip, the Ethiopian. He goes on rejoicing. As one radio pundit once put it, 
What I envy about Christians most is forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. That is a high price to pay for disbelief. As John Stott observed of the Ethiopian, he went on without the evangelist, but with the evangel, the gospel. Without human aid, but with the divine spirit. Irenaeus, a few years later, added to preach what he believed. Doubtless to both religious Jews, Alashas, and ethnic Africans, Amharics. For today, there are 45 million Ethiopian Orthodox believers, 14 million Protestants, and half a million Roman Catholics who are Christians in Ethiopia. So we have here this morning an example of the Christian faith being adopted by a black African whose journey to faith had come via Judaism to that fuller, completed version of the faith that is Christianity. It was embraced by someone of high social standing and yet someone not too proud intellectually or morally to allow such unnecessary barriers to stand in the way of finding and embracing the truth, which is Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, these encounters in the early church and to show, which show us the expansion of your long-established desire to reach all people of the world, all ethnic, all religious groups, that they might find faith through Jesus Christ and a reconciliation with yourself. And we thank you for Christians living today and in the past who are examples to us not to be too proud intellectually or morally or politically, to surrender ourselves to your authority. Amen.